Take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokers and tokets and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Thursday, January 5th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. Welcome to the show. We're coming to you live from beautiful, legal, freezing, cold Potland, Oregon, from Delta 9 Studios. (laughs) And we're literally freezing cold. It's like below 32 here, which is kind of rare. And I know everybody listening to me... uh, East of where I'm at is probably guffawing at me uh, for complaining. It's dry out, so we're not facing the mounds of snow that they're getting in southern Oregon, that you're getting uh, my friends out there in Idaho. I've seen some of their pictures with feet of snow. And, of course, back east, snow everywhere you look, but not here. Just cold, really freezing cold out here. But we'll warm up here. We've got some uh, small fires to light, if you know what I mean, as we enjoy our legal cannabis here in the state of Oregon and the legal Pacific time zone. We've got a lot of information to bring to you today. I've been doing a lot of research today on medical marijuana because I just got the information from the state of Arkansas on their decision about their medical marijuana licensing fees. Uh, We're going to talk about that in Drug War Data Mining today. Not only the latest information from Arkansas, but a look at some of the other medical marijuana states that are making it extremely difficult for anybody but the 1% to cultivate medical marijuana as a business. And it's just a, a further indication of how the money angle in marijuana may be undoing some of the legalization that we would like to see. So we'll talk about that coming up in drug war data mining. Also on the show, we'll have time to uh, get behind the headlines. We're going to talk a little bit about the NFL and their substance abuse bans. Uh, There's another player uh, from the number one seeded Dallas Cowboys in the NFC Uh, who has been popped for his marijuana use. So we'll talk about that coming up in Behind the Headlines. Also on the show today, we'll have uh, time to talk about uh, the continuing underground market in America and how the regulations that are being designed in this country for both medical and recreational marijuana are just guaranteeing that that underground market will not only continue, but flourish. So we'll take a look at that. We've also got some uh, updates on industrial hemp to tell you about, some uh, new state laws and some more data on the states that are growing industrial hemp. And we'll also take a look at the, uh, the regulations in Colorado where the former medical or the former marijuana enforcement division head has moved on to the state's uh, Colorado Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, moving from the regulatory world into the business world, which is something we see all the time at the federal level and at the state level for that matter. And why should the marijuana business be any different? The revolving door from business to regulator, regulator to business. As this continues to unfold throughout America, 
We're going to have to be very diligent about maintaining the rights and privileges of the consumers. But all that comes right after the Cannabis Radio News. And in the headlines today, we've got a possibility of medical marijuana home grow in New Hampshire with a catch. We've got a look at Connecticut uh, trying to help military veterans with medical cannabis. The state of Georgia may be looking at another medical marijuana bill or perhaps a referendum. We've got a candidate for mayor in Atlanta who is supportive of reforming marijuana laws. New data from Kentucky's hemp production. The story on Dallas Cowboys defensive end Randy Gregory and more when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we're taking a look at a survey that was uh, written about on LiveScience.com. It appears in the Journal of Cannabis and Cannabinoid uh, Therapies. And uh, it's about the uh, bud tenders that you might run into at a dispensary. The researchers involved with this study surveyed 55 uh, dispensary staff members. This was throughout uh, Colorado, California, Arizona, Oregon, D.C., Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Maine. And uh, this was both at medical and non-medical facilities. And what the researchers found is that 55% of the staff members surveyed, 30 out of the 55, had received any sort of formal training for their current positions. That is to say, 25 out of the 55 bud tenders uh, had no training whatsoever. Uh, according to this uh, survey, 20% had received any medical training on the health effects of marijuana, and just 13% received any training on the science of marijuana. Moreover, the some of the dispensary staff members in the study made recommendations to people who were purchasing marijuana that were not accurate or appropriate for treating the customer's conditions. For example, 13% of the staff members in the study said they had recommended types of marijuana that are high in levels of THC to patients who were trying to treat anxiety. Previous research has shown that THC may make anxiety worse. 7% of the staff members recommended THC for treating epilepsy, where again, CBD has been seen to be more effective in treating epilepsy. 35% of the dispensary staff members had received customer service training, 26% business training, 20% medical training, 13% scientific training. And another 20% had received some other type of training that might have involved learning about cannabis. Yet 94% of the study's participants said they had provided advice to customers, including recommending which strains they should use and how marijuana could benefit particular symptoms. The most common symptoms reported by the staff members were chronic pain, insomnia, and anxiety. According to the staff members, 62% said they always or often checked in or followed up with their customers after their purchases. Uh, again, this is in the Journal of Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. Overall, staff members were more likely to recommend marijuana with an equal ratio of THC to CBD for people with anxiety, PTSD, or trauma, and Crohn's disease, rather than recommending marijuana high in THC. 
The staff members were also more likely to recommend marijuana with high levels of CBD for customers with ALS, epilepsy, and muscle spasms. And, of course, that's what the research would suggest as well. And some staff members uh, did make recommendations that were not appropriate. 10% of staff members recommended high CBD to those who wanted to increase their appetite. And again, it's THC that seems to work on the appetite, not CBD that works on the appetite. And I'm all for us getting more information to the customers and having better trained uh, dispensary employees. The only worry I have is that it could provide yet another way of increasing the costs for the customer by requiring this level of training. We do have, uh, you know, a required level of training in most states when it comes to alcohol servers. You have to know when someone's too intoxicated and so forth. In Washington state, and I believe also in Colorado, the people working on the recreational side of the market aren't allowed to make recommendations regarding the health benefits or how it may affect someone for a particular condition. So the rules vary from state to state. But I believe it's time that we we start getting some sort of of um, of mandatory training for these uh, butt tenders for people that are going to be working with the public, especially as we move uh, more edibles and more concentrates into the market. These items need better advice for the general public, especially the newbies who may not know what they are doing. We do need some consistency and some sort of standardization for this training. And some of that is more difficult because of the inconsistent science regarding the effects marijuana may have on different conditions. But the better standardized we can make this and the better trained we can have our dispensary employees, the better experience people will have in the legal marijuana markets and the less problems we'll have moving forward. Oh, piggy can run. All right, that sound means that it's 20 after, and that means it's time for us to take a break. Got to pay some of the bills, and if you'd like to help us pay the bills, we're always taking donations here at the Russ Belville Show. You can PayPal them to Russ at RadicalRuss.com. All the money you send in goes toward travel budget and booking fees and hotels and computers and licenses and all the stuff that keeps this show running. Radio. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Well, the state of Arkansas has become the latest medical marijuana state to exclude small business opportunities by setting outrageous fees and capital requirements for a tiny few marijuana licenses. Uh, This is a report from, uh, I forget what the news source was, but they write, the Medical Marijuana Commission decided on a $100,000 license fee for Arkansas's growers of medical marijuana. The fee is on top of the $15,000 fee decided by the commission just to apply. If an applicant is rejected, half the application fee will be refunded. 
The commissioners also decided on basic financial requirements for applicants hoping to have a cultivation facility. They voted that applicants must show proof of $1 million in assets or a surety bond, or a surety bond, I should say, and must also show proof of $500,000 in cash. Yeah, so you or your company needs to be worth at least $1.5 million to even be considered for growing medical cannabis. Then you need to be willing to bet half your $15,000 application fee that they'll pick you. And if they do, you need to pay them $100,000 for your license. And the state is only awarding five licenses for growing medical cannabis. There is no limit, however, on how many applications they'll accept. And really, the more the better, because every application over the first five is a guaranteed free $7,500 for the state of Arkansas. Now, if this naked cash grab couldn't be more apparent, the commissioners ruled that the five cultivation licenses wouldn't have to be located, one in each of the state's health districts, as they had decided before. I mean, gosh, that might better serve patients. You know, the ones located in the more rural areas of the state. No, no, now they've decided that the five grow sites can be located anywhere. And the commission will favor the locations that can be shown to have the greatest economic impact. You know, the important part of medical marijuana law. How, how much money could we make from it? Arkansas's law also lacks any provision for patients and their caregivers to cultivate their own cannabis. Of course, that further benefits the state in its desire to tax medical cannabis products, and it further benefits the five wealthy license holders from whom the patients will be forced to shop. Now, don't think that Arkansas is inventing the wheel here. This is They're just following along the, uh, the precedent that has been set by a lot of the other medical marijuana states. For example, in Florida, 24 applicants who had to show $5 million in capital escrow paid over $60,000 each for a shot at just six grow licenses that cost $300,000 per year. That means Florida made over $1 million just from the non-refundable application fees. In Hawaii, 66 applicants who had to show $1 million in capital escrow paid $75,000 each for a shot at 16 grow licenses that cost $50,000 per year. So Hawaii made $3.75 million just from the non-refundable application fees. In Connecticut, 16 applicants who had to show $2 million in capital escrow paid $25,000 each for a shot at four grow licenses that cost $75,000 per year. So Connecticut made $300,000 just from the non-refundable application fees. In Illinois, 159 applicants paid $25,000 each for a shot at 21 grow licenses that cost $200,000 per year. That means Illinois made $3.45 million just from the non-refundable application fees. And in Pennsylvania, 
where they don't have the dispensary system up yet, the state will require a $10,000 non-refundable application fee, $1.5 million in capital escrow, and a half million dollars cash on hand for a shot at 12 grow licenses that will cost $200,000 per year. So based on my research where I was able to find the application fees, the capital requirements, the total number of licenses, and the total number of applications, I put it all in a spreadsheet, figured it all out, and based on my research, nine medical marijuana states have made over $10 million just from non-refundable medical marijuana grow license application fees. Over $10 million for people handing in pieces of paper. So I'm a little concerned that what we're seeing in the development of medical marijuana since about 2010 have been systems that focus on the commercial aspect of it and that limit medical marijuana production to just the best connected, most capitalized performers in the market. This is a disservice to the patients. Unlike we have states like uh, Maine and Colorado and Washington that don't set a limit on how many producers there can be. And even though they keep their licensing fees down to the four figures, maybe five figure level, they still make more money every year than these other states because they have so many more producers paying that fee. Arkansas, you're going the wrong direction on this. We need more growers, not fewer. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back with a blast from the past talking about hemp when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. prohibition of cannabis is a crime against the planet committed primarily by the United States. But as more U.S. states reform their marijuana laws, countries around the world are stepping back from cannabis prohibition. Join us now for a look at the international cannabis reform movement in this edition of the Wide World of Weed. Welcome back, everybody. It is 33 after the hour. We're coming to you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. We are at on site at the International Cannabis Business Conference and Expo. And right at this very moment, uh, the guru of ganja, Ed Rosenthal, is receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award. And, uh, man, I wish I was in that other room right now because he said he was going to have quite a fiery speech lined up. We'll uh, have to find out later what he actually said. But joining me here at the desk, a good friend of the show, my sativa sister from Seattle, uh, who rode with me on the Amtrak train, although... We didn't know we were on the Amtrak train together. It's Joy Beckerman from Hemp Ace International. She's joining us here. And uh, welcome back, Joy. So great to be here every single time, Radical Russ. Right on, right on. So here we are in Canada, and I understand that they had a, uh, a shortage 
on the uh, on one of the panels, and you got to uh, kind of dish on Canadian hemp. How awesome is that? That I got to pinch hit with the Miss Jamie Shaw and and Dieter McPherson and yeah. Kurt So yes, indeed, because there are some interesting things happening in Canada as well. Even though, of course, they legalized here industrial hemp in 1998, but uh, uh, are, are an excellent sort of a case study of how we continue to be vigilant this many years later. Again, as I mentioned today, the Canadian hemp farmers are not allowed to collect plant material, so the flowering parts, leaves, even the bracts around the seeds for that uh, non-intoxicating phytocannabinoid extraction and are really um, beginning to ramp up the fight for that right. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm so focused on the marijuana issue and, and somewhat medical. Uh, every time I get to talk to you in depth about hemp and we get into some of these weird little quirks of how the laws are set up in Canada, they can harvest all the, 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 the fiber stuff, but they can't use the leaf and the, the veggie material. In America, the, in some of the states, the, the marijuana producers can use all the marijuana material, but can't use the stocks. It's explain, fascinating. Yeah, Thank you. One. Yes, indeed. So in Canada, mostly, and the big issue with industrial hemp is that we need infrastructure. So with marijuana, you grow marijuana, you cure marijuana, you dry marijuana, you smoke marijuana, and or you further extract it. Now, that infrastructure for marijuana extraction, cannabis extraction, can be very expensive, but in terms of its comparison of being able to process the industrial hemp seed uh, for oil uh, on a large scale and for seed cake milling for our protein powders um, and our decortication infrastructure, meaning the separating of that outer bast fiber of the stock from that inner woody core, all of that infrastructure and all of that machinery is we're talking tens of millions of dollars. And then further, if we're going to uh, take that fiber and move it into um, further manufacturing involving textiles or paper, we actually need new infrastructure for that. We're not just going to be able to take hemp fiber and move it into a cotton sort of lateral move. It doesn't work like that. Hemp is its own unique uh, fiber in that respect. And it's the same thing with paper. We can't just move hemp pulp into uh, a wood pulp uh, paper making process. We have to actually get new equipment to be able to process hemp pulp. So having said that, back to the fact that the extraction of phytocannabinoids, whether it's marijuana or it's industrial hemp, being far less expensive... Our hemp farmers, of course, whether we're in North America, whether we're in the United States or whether we're in Canada, want to be able to use those that biomass to uh, not only not to waste it, because, of course, farmers are not into wasting biomass at all, but to use it for its get it out into the public for the valuable medicine that it is, but also to be able to, you know, generate revenue from it. So since 1998, the, uh, the farmers here have not been able to extract phytocannabinoids. They still are unable to. And yes, in America, whereas in Canada they have federal law, in America we have 50 different laws, and in fact 31 states that have actually passed some type of legislation for industrial hemp. Um, and of those states, I divided into three sec- three categories of legalization. So some, let's take Colorado, have just been like, we're legalizing. We don't care that there's some federal path to do it, that there's some a- amendment you silly farm bill people uh, passed on a federal level. We're just going to do what we want to do. And they do extraction. They do fiber. They do seeds to the extent that they have, of course, limited infrastructure to process fiber and seeds. They have a tremendous 
infrastructure to process extraction. Then we have these two other categories that have actually followed this pathway that the feds have laid out, which is Section 7606 of the Farm Bill. And these two different categories are, okay, we actually are going to legalize under a research program, but we're going to allow for plant material collection and the extraction of phytocannabinoids. And then we have states like Washington, which we just legalized hemp in March of 2016. I know that comes as a shock to folks because folks think, think that we legalized it when we legalized marijuana in 2012. We like Canada, have written into our law that our hemp farmers will not be able to collect plant material and uh, extract for phytocannabinoids. The silver lining to that is that uh, states that have uh, legalized in that same respect as Washington and or as Canada, not allowing the farmers to do that, will move forward with the oil seed and fiber. And the oil seed and fiber in the long run is the trillion dollar industry with industrial hemp. So phytocannabinoid extraction is a smaller portion, obviously, of what industrial hemp's true potential is. But it's fascinating that a non-intoxicating of the 144 cannabinoids that we know of, only 143 of them, I believe, so far have we nailed as intoxicating. And that's even the decarboxylated yeah. form yeah. of one of them. Um, but uh, yeah, not allowed to. So literally, we're talking about wasted biomass. It must be left in Canada and in states like Washington on farm. Cannot be processed. Must stay on the farm. In, in sense. Wow. And when we're, t- when we're talking about this extraction of phytocannabinoids from the plant material of industrial hemp, that's uh, the longhand version of getting CBD from hemp. That's yes. basically, they're trying, they're trying to make this workaround of, oh, the CBD oil is good for the kids, but marijuana is illegal, but hemp will we'll make that. And this is where we get into that murky area of these sellers that are saying, oh, we've got this legal CBD. It's legal in all 50 states. And maybe you can dish Thank on that you. a bit. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's such a gray area. It's a fascinating area because it's developing so rapidly. It's like, don't blink. Something changed in either a regulation or not. But, but so I think the big drumbeat that, that the DEA, of course, is beating all the while is that cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids come from the resins of the plant. And that if you look at the definition of marijuana in the Controlled Substances Act, you'll see that in those two sentences, the word resin is used three times. It's used twice within the first sentence that discusses marijuana, and it's used once in the second sentence that discusses the exclusion of industrial hemp within marijuana. But the issue is that it discusses itself in that sentence as an exception to the exclusion. So when it says uh, such term, meaning marijuana, does not include the mature stocks thereof, and it goes on, it then has a parenthetical that says, except the resins therefrom. So what the architects of of the Nixon administration, although you know I, being the nerd that I am, I can't help but say that this definition is actually taken word for word from the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, the architects of that definition of marijuana wanted to make sure we knew that whether you are talking about marijuana or whether you were talking about the exception for marijuana which is industrial hemp, those resins are off limits. So having said that, the DEA beats that drum. We have, however, such a defensible uh, network of holes big enough to drive a hemp CBD truck through, whether it's various new law, the definition of industrial hemp that was written in the uh, Section 7606, which does not include a carve-out for resin. So this new definition, which is historical, uh, which was included in that farm bill, that distinguishes industrial hemp from marijuana for the first time in U.S. history, 
simply defines it as any part of the plant, cannabis sativa, whether growing or not, with a THC concentration of not greater than 0.3% um, on a dry weight basis. So no carve-out for the resins. This is a hole big enough to drive a truck through. We're saying, yay. At Section 7606, you're allowing us to use any part of the industrial hemp plant without a carve-out. Then we have the subsequent language in Consolidated Appropriations Act, as you know, because medical marijuana is also being protected in these budgetary bills that the U.S. Congress passes each year, saying that the Department of Justice and the, and the Drug Enforcement Administration are not allowed to use certain funds to prosecute state legal and state-compliant actors, and that includes industrial hemp as well. Um, having said that, uh, there is... The USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, the DEA, and the FDA, our Food and Drug Administration, and our U.S. Customs and Border Protection, those are the four federal agencies that you want to be looking at for this constantly changing regulation, policies, and practices as concerns hemp-derived CBD. In the end, they all are agreeing and they are all putting out there that, no, they do not intend for industrial hemp under research federal law to be grown for folks to be extracting phytocannabinoids from that. It's totally defensible, but the, but the feds are, are telling us that, no, they, they are not condoning that. The issue is they're neither enforcing it nor going after these actors. Um, and so we continue to just consider ourselves uh, to, to be uh, defending um, what we're doing. But in the plain letter of the law, when we say on all these websites it's legal in all 50 states, it's a leap. It's a, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to condemn anybody for, for making those claims. Um, you know, being on the law side of things, I, I don't say that because I don't believe that claim. It's a defensible claim. Let's there leave it go. at that. Well, we just have a, a, about a minute and a half left here, and Jamie Shaw is right in front of the desk here. So I thought we'd say hi to Jamie, and uh, thank you for getting uh, Joy on your panel today. Oh, yeah. It was awesome that she was able to do it. We had some uh, late-minute, last-minute cancellations and uh, found out that Joy was also a member of the Canadian Hemp Alliance. So that was amazing, and she killed it. All right. So uh, just real quickly here, uh, what are some of the main or maybe the main thing you'd like to get across to people listening about Canadian activism and how they can help? Oh, geez. You know, it's it's honestly, it's it's very similar to what's going on in the States. The, the specific issues are, are different, but we see the same patchworks. And we see the same cities moving forward with sensible regulations and making compromises in certain areas. And we see other places doing the opposite or going in different directions. Um, up here where dispensaries are still illegal, according to the government, it's fascinating to us when places like Louisiana pass legislation that allows them to have dispensaries. Um, so it's a little mind-boggling here. But, uh, you know, ultimately, I think we're all going the same way. We're all going the same place. We all kind of want the same things, ultimately. Um, and there's some differing opinions about how to get there, as, as you know very well yourself from your conversations with Be Real this week. Yes, yes. <laughs> Certainly learned a lot from that. Well, <laughs> I, I'm learning a ton about what's going on in Canada and up here at the ICBC. So many great Canadian activists to learn from. Uh, Jamie, thanks so much. And, and do you have any uh, contacts you want to give out to people if they'd like more information? Uh, sure. Well, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Jamie S.A. Shaw um, or Jamie Shaw on Facebook. Um, All right. Yeah, those, are, those would be good places to check. All right. And, and for you, uh, Joy, any uh, contact information for people? Thank you so much. HempAce.com and at HempAce on Twitter. Joy Beckerman on Facebook. Right on. Love all right. you, Jamie Shaw, goddess. <laughs> Back at you, girl. <laughs> That's all the time we got for this interview. So thank you so much for stopping by, learning a little bit more about what's happening all around the world. When we come back, we'll have time for a radical rant on...
on the racist, homophobic reefer madness of Maine Governor Paul LePage. Stay tuned. Hell, that's a rant you could do just about any day of the week, isn't it? My thanks to uh, Joy Beckerman and uh, Jamie Shaw. That was an interview recorded in Vancouver, B.C. earlier this year. Stay tuned, because when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the NFL's continuing marijuana idiocy. They suspended another player for a year for failing a marijuana test. We'll be right back. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. 